the title of today's sermon is The Surprise of Grace. Surprise of Grace. And we're gonna, um, I'm going to be reading and teaching primarily from the New American Standard Bible. So if you want to read along with me on your device, uh, that's the version I'll be reading from. Otherwise, this text will be up here on the screen. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 23 and read through the end of the chapter, okay? So hold on. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus says to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from man? They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And so answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think, Jesus continues, a man had two sons. He came to the first son and he said, go work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second son, and he said the same thing. And the son answered, I will, sir. But then he did not go. He asked the Pharisees, now, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Listen to another parable, Jesus continues. There was a landlord, a landowner, who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He rented it out to vine growers, and then he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took the slaves, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. So again, the landowner sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Let's seize his inheritance. And so they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? The religious leaders respond and say to Jesus, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. But when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. This is the word of God. Church, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to submit ourselves to your word. We pray 
God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would anoint and bless this time. You'd anoint the preaching and the teaching of the word, and you would anoint the response, the listening, the hearing, and the impact and response of your word. We love you, God. We, we ask you, God, to surprise us today with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so the surprise of grace. Here we see Jesus in this parable, or excuse me, we see Jesus in this passage back at the temple in Jerusalem teaching. Um, This is the day after he was in there, just the day before this, flipping over tables, right? And so this is his first time back uh, to the temple. Now remember, this is Passover season in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, the the whole city of Jerusalem, would have been just overwhelmed with people coming to the temple uh, for Passover. The temple itself would have been throbbing with people, totally overwhelmed with the masses. And so this is the context in which Jesus is trolling the temple system, right? Trolling the leaders of the temple. And he's uh, confronted by these leaders as he's teaching at the temple. And he's asked, by what authority has he come to the temple to teach? See, the religious leaders had completely missed the point of the, day, the act that Jesus did the day before. They didn't get it. They didn't know what Jesus was all about. They didn't get that God's love and that God's grace is for all people. And so in our text today, we see that the leaders are surprised again by the grace of God for all people. God's grace is surprising and this is, this is a great passage for us because I believe, like the religious leaders, we have a tendency uh, to miss God's grace too. Uh, the, uh, the great American theologian Al Pacino once said, he's not a theologian for those of you that don't get it. He said, I asked God for a bike, but I know that God doesn't work that way. So I stole the bike and asked for forgiveness. <laughs> Now, see, this, that statement taps into a sentiment I think we all uh, sense intuitively, but maybe we haven't realized it explicitly. And that's this, that we feel a tension. Uh, we feel a tension, even a confusion, over the meaning and the scope of God's grace. See, uh, Pacino's insightful uh, confession here, as it were, it exposes one of the two ways, the two ways we can view grace. Either grace is permission to sin, right, or Grace is the power to overcome sin. And so to summarize our confusion and, and kind of tie those thoughts about grace into the storyline that we're reading today, uh, I'm going to ask a question. And this is a question I'm sure the religious leaders would have been asking amongst themselves as they're hearing this story and trying to make application of the story. If God is holy, how can, how can the kingdom of God be full of prostitutes and tax collectors? Does God lower his standards? Does he overlook sin? And so we're going to gain some clarity about these questions in our text today. And so here's Jesus back at the temple, right, teaching, and he's confronted by the religious leaders. They're like, what the heck? Jesus, like, seriously? And they come up and they ask him this question. They're like, what authority do you have to do these things, right? And Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He's like, oh, we're asking questions? Cool. I've got a question for you. And he responds with this question about the authenticity of John's baptism. He, he's like, is it, was it from God? Is that from God? Now, this is kind of a trick question. He's, he's kind of got them in a spot. Because if they said it was from God, they would be validating Jesus' ministry, right? That Jesus was sent from God. They'd be validating his authority. But if they said it wasn't from God, 
then they would risk offending the thousands of people that thought that John was a prophet and they wanted to hear Jesus out. And so the religious leaders are forced to reply, we don't know. It's a checkmate move, right? Jesus had just put them in a corner. And so they give this dishonest answer. They're not even, they, they, they don't even allow themselves to give an honest answer when they say they don't know. Because they chose to reject the authority of Jesus, because they chose to reject the very idea that Jesus might have authority. They're forced to function in dishonesty. Now, this is kind of a side note, but man, isn't that what happens to us when we try to live outside of Jesus' authority? I believe lies when Jesus isn't Lord of my life, when I'm not actively submitting myself to the Lordship of Christ. I believe believe lies, lies about myself. I believe lies about others. I believe lies about God. And maybe some of us are in that spot today. Maybe some of us are choosing to believe lies because we're rejecting or not submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus. You see, this is exactly what the religious leaders were doing here in the temple. And so they have to lie to cover themselves. And so by asking his question in response to their question, Jesus is taking charge of the conversation. He's reframing the discussion altogether. See, he's not, he's not accepting the very premise of their question. And so he reframes the discussion by, by telling these stories about God breaking into a broken religious system and God breaking into a broken world. And he seizes this opportunity to challenge their assumptions. And we, and we need to let the words of Jesus challenge our assumptions today about God and our assumptions about the kingdom of God. And Jesus does this by telling three stories. Now we're going to look at two stories today, and then next week we'll take a look at the third story. And we see that the stories in the New Testament that Jesus tells are powerful, right? Jesus is a master storyteller. And so uh, let's see what we can see about God's kingdom in this first parable. The first parable is this uh, story about a father who has two sons, and he goes and he asks each of them to work in the vineyard. The first one says no, and then the text tells us that he regrets that, that response, and then he goes and obeys his father. He goes and he works in the vineyard. The second son, the father comes up, asks him in the same way, will you go work in the vineyard? And he says, yes, sir, I will. But then he doesn't go and work. Now, Jesus doesn't explain the parable right away. He asks these religious leaders a question. He says, uh, which son did the will of the father? Right? He's making them think about the story. And they respond, of course, there's an obvious answer. The first son is the one that obeyed the father, did the will of the father. It's obvious, right? And so Jesus then goes and explains that the tax collectors and prostitutes are, are that first son. They're the ones that say no to God and live life on their own terms. But then when they're confronted with grace and the gospel, they see this beautiful opportunity to receive a free gift and they respond and they obey the father. And then he says that the religious leaders are like the second son, right? They're willing to stand there and say, yes, oh yes, I obey God. Yes, I'm holy. But then that doesn't play out as a reality in their life. They don't live in light of that commitment that they made. Their life doesn't explain the Father's request. And so we hear this sobering assessment of the religious leaders' true standing before God. In verse 31, Jesus says these words to them. He says, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Man, that would have been so appalling to the religious leaders. Like tax collectors and prostitutes, those would have been the furthest people from the kingdom in their mind. They were seen as a disgrace. See, the religious knew what we know, that God is holy. He's called us to be holy. 
And so as they're thinking about this, they're like, how in the world can tax collectors and prostitutes get into the kingdom of God? And how in the world can they get into the kingdom of God before us? And see, this is the great surprise of God's kingdom. This is the scandal of God's grace. It is scandalous how far the grace of God reaches. And the religious leaders didn't get it. See, to them, to these religious leaders, holiness was a prerequisite for receiving God's grace rather than a product of God's grace. They thought that God loves good people rather than that God makes people good. See, they missed it. Their basic assumptions about the kingdom were exactly backwards. And see, I feel like some of us have a tendency to do that too. Um, Oftentimes, like growing up, I had a tendency to, to read the Bible or learn about the Bible And I would see these amazing people, these saints of God, that God used to do these incredible things. And and I would say, man, I wish I was great like that so that God could use me to do good things, right? And then we mistakenly teach our kids, man, if you just had the courage and the faith of David, you could defeat the Goliaths in your life, right? And we we hold these people up on a pedestal. But that's so wrong. See, if we're actually willing to read the Bible and see the storyline of Scripture— we know Noah, Noah was an incestuous drunkard. Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper, right? Jacob was a crooked thief. Moses murdered a guy, and this like mob style, he murdered a guy and hid the body in the desert, right? David was an adulterer, a murderer. He was a religious fraud for a, a whole year. David presided over the religious life of Israel after he had slept with a woman, got her pregnant, conspired to have her husband killed, had him killed, covered it up, leading the people. Gnarly. Solomon. Solomon was a player, right? But see, God worked through these people by his grace. And see, this is just the Old Testament. We see the same themes of the people that God uses in the New Testament. Levi, right? Matthew, he's a tax collector. Simon is a political fanatic. Peter, right? The amazing rock that Jesus talks, talks about. Peter, he denies Jesus three times after following Jesus for three years. Paul, he hunted down Christians, murdered Christians. Yet we know their names. We read about them in the Bible. But that's not because these guys are models of morality. No, that is because they are all pictures of God's grace. See, the Bible is not a story of God looking for good people, but one of God redeeming sinful people. See, this should be received as good news for us today. Jesus chose people and chooses people the furthest from the kingdom. And he does that to show them and to show us that it is by grace that we are saved. Nobody works their way into the kingdom. Nobody enters based on their own merit. See, this is the surprising detail of grace that these religious leaders missed. In fact, it was probably more like a shocking detail for them. They were utterly offended by this. And we need to try hard in our modern minds to understand this offense the way they would have heard it. Um, Because in our culture, we tend to sympathize with prostitutes. We do. Uh, now, yes, they do bear the burden of responsibility for the actions they make, but we also know that oftentimes uh, they're victims. You may not be aware that uh, the average age 
of a prostitute entering into that profession in the United States is 13 years old. The average prostitute starts her trade or his trade at 13 years old. Most of these people have been abused. Most of them have been uh, sexually, systematically sexually abused. Many of them have been overlooked or just fallen through the cracks in a broken foster care or uh, social services system. And so we tend to have sympathy for that. But see, these religious leaders were coming from a completely different culture. It was very different then. They would not have had the same type of sympathy for the prostitutes. So to, to frame what Jesus is saying about these religious leaders, it would be like Jesus coming in here now and collecting a bunch of self-righteous pastors and then telling them, hey, guys, crooked Wall Street bankers and celebrity porn stars are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. See, we have a hard time with this. We're like, wait a minute. How could some crooked Wall Street banker, right, that's keeping the system rigged for his own profit, how could a celebrity porn star that's just thumbing her nose at anything that resembles God, how can they receive grace from God? One of my favorite biographies um, is about a guy who is a a slave trader in the 1700s. Uh, He's a ship captain of of a slave ship, and his ship is going down in a storm, and he cries out to God for grace. And at this point in the biography, I'm like, don't do it, Lord, right? This guy is a stinking dirt bag. He doesn't deserve grace. We all know intuitively that he doesn't deserve grace. Everything in me knows that. Believe it or not, this slave trader's name is John Newton. John Newton, not only was he saved from that storm, but he was saved by the grace of God in every aspect of his life. Became a pastor in England. He wrote many things, including the hymn that we all know, Amazing Grace. And so I think we tend to feel that we deserve grace sometimes, but these horrible and rebellious people don't. I can so easily fall into this false understanding of grace. And this is Uh, This is what had happened with religious leaders that Jesus is confronting. They saw themselves as better than the prostitutes. They saw themselves in a different category than the tax collectors. And I think it would do us some good. It would do us some good to remember how offensive our sin is to God. So when we see our sin as God sees our sin, right? When we see the offense of our sin against God, when we're honest enough before God, We see that we are actually on the same plane. We have the same need of grace in our life as tax collectors and prostitutes. We desperately need God's grace. And so in verse 32, we see Jesus. He he creates this contrast between the religious leader's response and the prostitute's response to this invitation to grace. Look at what he says, Matthew 21, 32. He says, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, they did believe them. And you, seeing this, seeing their response to grace, right? Seeing prostitutes say yes to God and having their life changed. He says, you, seeing this, you didn't even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. See, Jesus is saying, man, they got it. The prostitutes and tax collectors, they get it. You don't even get it. You're you're missing it. And his message, Jesus' message is so simple from the very beginning of his ministry, right? It's simple. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The right response to God's grace is repentance and faith. Turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. And these religious leaders did the exact opposite of that, didn't they? They resisted God's grace and they didn't believe him. 
It's just crazy to me, the idea of resisting grace. Why would anyone resist grace? Grace is an undeserved gift. And so we need to be clear about what we're talking about, though. We need to kind of define grace a little bit before we answer that question. What is grace? And grace isn't a thing that God gives us outside of himself. God gives us himself when we don't deserve him. See, that is grace. So we're talking about grace. That's what we're talking about, God actually offering himself to us. So why would anyone resist that? It's a free gift. Um, you guys know Elena Buffin, right? Brian and Elena Buffin. I love, so Elena just had a birthday. She's 30. She's old now. And um, her birthday party was rad. But what's, what's more fun than even a birthday party is hearing how Elena spends her actual birthday. She's got this system rigged, okay? She knows what businesses to go to that hook you up on your birthday. So, and she's going to so many places. She's like going to, you know, the pizza place, getting a pizza. And they're like, what else would you like with that? She's like, that's it, you know? And then, and then she's taking that pizza, put it in her freezer, and then going over to Jersey Mine. You know, it's like just walking in grace all day long. I love it. See, if someone's giving you a free gift, why would you resist that? Who hates, right? See, I see three reasons why we tend to resist grace. And really, um, I want us to think about these, not as reasons, but I I want us to think about these as enemies of grace. There are three enemies of grace. First enemy of grace is pride. Pride is the idea that we don't need grace. And we all struggle with pride. Some of us just want to do stuff ourselves in our American culture, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so we see grace as like this thing that weak people need. But man, if you read the Bible, you see that grace is not a crutch for the weak. Grace is a foundation for the humble. Grace is a foundation for the honest. And see, when I'm honest with myself, I realize, guys, I don't need a crutch in my life. I'm not like a mostly strong person that just kind of needs a crutch. I need a heart transplant. I need it to be changed from the inside out. And so pride is is an enemy of grace. The second enemy of grace is entitlement. If pride says, I don't need grace, entitlement says, I deserve grace. Now, we live in a culture of entitlement, right? Where, where we're like begged to be entitled by the advertising and just the nature of our culture around us. We all struggle with it, I believe. And I see three steps to entitlement. I, I'm allowed to create these steps to entitlement because I'm really good at it, right? And so here's a clear pathway to entitlement if you're looking that, for that. The first step toward becoming an entitled person is receiving a free gift. Receiving something you don't deserve. The second step in entitlement is getting used to receiving that free gift. The third step toward entitlement is I start to think that I deserve that free gift. So it's no longer viewed as a gift at that point. See, grace makes people more grateful. Entitlement makes me an an entitled complainer. And here's how this plays out. We grow entitled and we complain about everything. At least if you're smart enough like me, I'm, I'm smart enough to not verbally complain about everything. But when I grow entitled, in my heart I'm complaining about everything, right? Entitled people, when they look at the church, they only see things that need fixing. Entitled people, when, when they look at other people, they only see how difficult and complicated they are. Well, this relationship's going to cost me and so I'm not going to, you know. Entitled people that when they're confronted with mission even, It's like, man, 
I, when I think about overseas missions and I'm an entitled person, I only think about how dangerous that is for my kids or how I could never afford that or I'd have to sell my house. And like we have entitlement is this crazy thing that actually strangles out grace in our life. The third enemy of grace is pity. And pity is the idea that I'm not worthy of grace, right? God could never be gracious to me. And we hear people say things like that. Like, God might forgive me, but I could never forgive myself. And we're like, oh my gosh, that person is so humble, right? But see, when we say that, we're actually saying that we have a a higher standard of morality than God. Right? God might forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. Like, who the heck are you, (laughs) right? And see, although that statement sounds humble, it's actually doubting the sufficiency of God's grace. It's in pity, and self-pity is an enemy of grace. So the surprising grace of God, we see it in this parable. It kind of cuts two ways, right? There's grace as recognized and, and received by the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and then grace as extended to these more uh, the religious leaders, the more religiously minded people. And so you might be thinking that God's grace could never really forgive you for what you've done, right? If you're more inclined to identify with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And today you need to hear God's grace goes that far. And maybe you're new to church or new to Christianity and you're here, you're just checking it out and you're kind of expecting to hear like, okay, he's going to start talking about the good things I need to do to gain God's approval, right? And maybe several of us today are confused about what it means to follow Jesus, And you need to hear right out front, here's the disclaimer. Following Jesus is not about what you do for God to earn his approval. That is not what Christianity is about. Following Jesus is about receiving this free gift of what Jesus has done for us when we were incapable of doing any good. It is a free gift. My wife and I, um, uh, one of our earliest foster kids, she came to us at age 14, and um, she had been a, a prostitute and had been involved in drugs and addiction. And uh, she stayed with us for several years. She left our home at about age 18, and she dove head first into a life of addiction and prostitution and pain. And um, we would pray for her, and it was pretty brutal. We didn't know where she was. We didn't know um, how she's doing. And I developed an obsession of going to the county website, you know, to see if she'd been arrested. And I'd go to every one of her hearings, and she'd show up and, you know, shackled and, and be let out there, just stone-cold expression, scabs all over her face from her addiction and lifestyle. And um, she'd see me up there, and she'd just start weeping. She'd just lose it. You know, she'd become that little girl, you know, that we used to sing to and stuff. And um, last time I saw her, uh, she agreed to meet me in a park. This is just a few years ago, so this has been a couple decades now. And just, just trash, just looked horrible. She's all strung out. And she asked me, she's like, don't ever give up on me. Please don't ever give up on me. And I'll be honest with you guys, this is just a total confession. My wife and I struggle to barely remain sort of faithful to her over the years. We struggle to barely remain sort of faithful to her. And some of us need to hear today that God is always and perfectly faithful. God has not given up on you. Amen. See, God never stops pursuing us. In my best, in my best, that's a sob story, right? In my best, I can barely respond sort of obediently to that. Sort of faithfully. God is always perfectly faithful. You might have rejected God at some point in the past. 
right? You, you, you might have said no to God, and you've been living a lifestyle apart from God. Listen, you need to hear today that God has not accepted no as your final answer. God's saying, no, I'm not receiving that. There's grace for what you've done. There's grace for what you've fallen into. There's grace for you this morning. This is the surprise of grace. Now, the other way that this message cuts is uh, for those of us that are more kind of uh, religiously minded, so to speak, like these religious leaders, we definitely need to be surprised by grace today. See, the moment I started talking about grace, I bet you there's some people in here that are like, oh, I know about this. I've been around a while. He's going to talk on grace today. Listen, I'm not sure we actually do get it. Maybe you don't get grace as well as you think. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be a provocative jerk or whatever. I'm telling you this because I've been around. I've been around a long time. I know all about grace. I could, I could open my Bible and go to more than two dozen places and show you explicitly the beauty and the glory and the, and the freeness of God's grace. Not really a word. And I still, I still often feel this pull in my heart and in my life to identify myself and my worth and what I do for others and what I do for God rather than identifying in what God has done for me. See, I still struggle with walking in grace, self-identifying in grace. You see, we need to recognize this tendency in us. Some of us need to be surprised by grace today. Some of us might be trying to impress God today. Or maybe you're trying to impress other people today. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're trying to impress yourself. See, if that's you, I hope and I pray that you're surprised by God's love and God's grace today. And so looking back on this parable, we can see how this all plays out. There's this second son, right, that responds. And he says, yes, yes, sir, it says in the NASB. Yes, I will go. But then he doesn't. Then he doesn't obey the father. And I've seen this play out so many times in the life of, of American Christianity. It played out in my life for, for years and years. It's like someone coming into the church, being convicted, responding to God, confessing sin, even going so far as to be baptized, even going so far as to write the date in the Bible, because that's the ultimate commitment, right? And then we go out and we live exactly the same way as we did before we made that decision. Why does this happen? Why does that sound like such a a common story in American Christianity? I think the reason is that we misunderstand the nature of grace. Because we misunderstand grace, we have this yes to God, then no response. Like the second son. We say yes up front, and then we live a lifestyle that basically says no. And so I think there's... There are four common misconceptions that we have, we tend to have about grace that lead to this yes-then-no response to grace. Four common misconceptions, and we'll put them up here for those of you that are like, don't talk too fast. Okay, grace is permission to sin. Grace is permission to sin. That's the first common misconception about grace. God forgives sin so I can sin and God will just forgive me, right? You need to hear today that grace is not permission to sin. Grace is the power to overcome sin. God's grace forgives us, but God's grace also transforms us. Grace changes us. The second misconception of grace is that grace fills in the gaps. Okay, I kind of talked about this earlier. And this is the idea that I'm mostly a good person. And what I do in life is I, I kind of give it my all and I put my best effort in. But there are some areas, you know, where I admittedly come up short. And so God fills these little areas of weakness in my life with his grace. But see, we need to understand that that is a false theology, 
That is a false, that is a misconception of God's grace. Grace is not God filling in the gaps. Grace is God giving me everything I need for every moment of every day, of every season of my life. Every good thing I have in life is by God's grace. And the fourth misconception of grace, oh, excuse me, the third misconception of grace is that grace is God relaxing his standards, right? Like God, he starts out way in the history of the Old Testament, and he's just this gnarly God that sets these high standards, and he's got this law, and he's got these expectations, and he's just this, you know, this fire, and there's all this radical stuff. And then you, you turn the new page into the New Testament, and all of a sudden, it's like God's gotten, you know, 400 years older, and he's a little more benevolent. And he's like, you know, it's, it's not quite as heavy as the Old Testament. He's like, well, you know, it, maybe the bar was a little too high, right? And so let's extend some grace so we at least get some people that make it into the kingdom, right? See, God is, grace is not God letting up on his law. Grace is not God letting up on his standards for holiness. Grace is God sending his son to fulfill the law in our place. Grace is God substituting the perfect fulfillment of the law, substituting our inability with Jesus' perfect ability. He sent Jesus to die on a cross to prove that he is both just and justifier. We can't take credit for that. The fourth misconception of grace is that grace opposes effort. And this is the idea uh, that we can fall into that says I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't really matter what I do. And guys, this is just silly because... We're saved by grace and not by works. It doesn't mean that works don't matter. See, grace doesn't oppose effort. Grace opposes merit, right? Grace opposes the idea that our works earn approval from God. And so as Christians who understand grace, we see that we we try hard. We put a lot of effort into our faith and into our Christianity. But here's the the catch, and this is so subtle. It's horrible that it's this subtle. Because in my life, it kept me trapped in a system of trying to earn God's approval. You have to hear today that our hard work and our effort comes from a place of receiving God's grace. It is not for receiving grace. We don't work for God's grace. We work from grace. And this grace that we receive from God, it's a free gift. But as we see in the next parable we're going to look at right now, it it costs a great price. And so uh, we're going to look at, starting in verse 33, Jesus tells this other parable about this landlord who owns a vineyard, and he goes away, and then at the right time, at the right season, when there's supposed to be fruit, and he's supposed to collect some of that fruit as payment for the vineyard, he sends servants there, and the people that are operating the, vi- the vineyard, they kill the servants. And so he sends more servants to collect, and they kill those servants. Well, rather than calling the authorities or sending in someone to, you know, to, to Smack down on those guys. He goes, you know what? I'm going to send my son. They're going to respect my son. He sends his son. What do they do? They kill him too. And so we see just initially that a surface reading of this paints this beautiful picture of the persistent grace of God. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. God sending the prophets to Israel. Israel who had re- rebelled. And they're like, return to God, right? Re- return to God. He's, he's kind. He will receive you. Turn from your ways. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. But what do they do? They mock and beat and kill the prophets. And God sends more prophets. And he sends more prophets. And finally, we see in John three sixteen, it says that God loved the world so much that he sent his own son. Did they receive God's son with joy and thanksgiving? No. 
And this is where we see the cost of grace. They killed Jesus on a cross. And so Jesus, in endeavoring to explain to the Pharisees who he is and by what authority he's operating, he, he's quoting Psalm 118 here in this parable. And he's saying, I am the cornerstone which was rejected. So the religious leaders that asked Jesus, who do you think you are? And here he is plainly in this parable. We see Jesus saying, I'm the son of God who's been sent by the Father. See, Jesus shows us who he is by showing himself as the rejected stone who has become the cornerstone. And so what does it mean that he's the rejected stone? This refers to the death of Christ, that God sent Jesus, and he was examined, right? Imagine first century builders. They would go find a a quarry somewhere, and they would, like, pull these rocks out of the ground, and they'd be looking for cracks, and and they're, like, examined, like, no, they reject that one. That's not going to be the cornerstone. And they would go over and over looking at these rocks. Jesus says, I was examined by Israel, and because of your heart, I was rejected. He's the rejected stone. Jesus, who came out of love to fulfill God's mission, was rejected and killed on a cross. So it it raises the question now, why did Jesus have to die? If God's gracious, if God is forgiving, why did Jesus have to die? And the, the simple answer to that question is because God isn't only gracious and only loving. God is also holy and just and pure. God is quick to love He's persistent in love. He's a pursuer. He's sending servants and sons rather than smackdown, right? But that doesn't mean that God is not holy. And we see, we see God's love and God's grace in the cost that he's willing to pay in the death of Christ. And while grace is free for us, it costs God greatly. See, in the cross, we see that we receive the grace of God and we've done nothing for it. And this is good news for us, that God did what we could not do. That Jesus died in our place so we could be reconciled to God. And we now are able to live by grace, grace upon grace. See, the cross is a beautiful thing. I knew, I knew when I became a Christian, of all the, everything I learned about the cross growing up, I knew at one point when I became a Christian, and this was a real thing for me, was the day that the cross stopped being this weird thing to becoming the most valuable, amazing thing that I obsess over all the time in my whole life. I just can't get over the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross. So the cross just must seem so creepy to non-Christians, Right? The idea and the message of the cross is so different and so weird. The Apostle Paul says as much, actually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, apart from grace, the grace of God, what is good about the cross? Right? The cross is this horrible, slow, torturous way of dying. But when we see that the cross is an act of grace, that it was sent and offered to us as forgiveness of our sins. We see that it's God's grace. We can marvel over the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that we're saved by grace. Not only was Jesus rejected, he says in this passage that he has become the cornerstone. Now that's a reference. So the the rejection part is a reference to the cross. The cornerstone part is, is a reference to his resurrection. So the rejected stone is, is brought back and demonstrated in power by conquering sin, death, and the devil through his resurrection and is now placed as the foundation stone, the cornerstone of the church. 
Now, the cornerstone is the most important stone in the building, right? It had to be strong. It had to be without defect. It had to be perfectly hewn so all the other stones could rest on it and be aligned with it. And church, we need to hear this, that Jesus says, I am the stone that you rejected, but I am the cornerstone. This is true of the church in general. It's true here at Reality Ventura. We don't need to find, oh, what's our foundation? What's our cornerstone? We don't even, you don't even ask that question. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is our foundation. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is to be our foundation. If you mess with the foundation, it messes the whole building up. This is true of the church. It's true in our families. And it's true for our own personal life. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is our foundation. We rest in this and have confidence in it. And because Jesus was rejected, we're able to receive full acceptance by God. See, the surprise of grace is that Jesus was rejected for us. So if Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of the kingdom, it begs the question, how can prostitutes, going back to the beginning now, how can prostitutes enter the kingdom of God? Does God simply overlook prostitution? Is he overlooking sin? Has God changed his mind? Has he lowered his standard, right? Not just sexual sin, but the strong exploiting the weak and all the craziness that's involved in prostitution. See, God doesn't have a kingdom of sinners because he overlooks sin. That's not what God does. God's love doesn't lead him to ignore or overlook sin. God's love leads him to deal with sin. God's love meets us where we're at, and his love refuses to let us stay there. So we all know this intuitively. In order to love someone, you don't have to affirm their lifestyle, right? In fact, if you really love someone, true love cares so much about someone that you would alert them to destructive behavior. Because we actually care, right? That's true for us. That's true for God. He can love you without affirming your lifestyle. Now, that's that's a significant point. Because we need to be careful not to confuse God's patience with us in our sin for God's approval of our sin. Love wants what's best for the beloved. God knows what's best with us. His patience with you and his love towards you while you were yet sinners is not an approval of our lifestyle. And so when we look at God's love and we look at God's grace toward those who are living at a place that's so far from God. We have to know that's not God approving life, their lifestyle. That's God loving them and being patient with them. So grace is not about God changing his standards. Grace is about God changing his people. This is the surprise of grace. Grace changes us. It produces fruit. And this is why Jesus, he kind of wraps this whole thing up in verse 43. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruit. See, when the grace of God takes root in our heart, it produces fruit in our life. And so responding to God's grace, it's not just a one-time event. Responding to God's grace should be the steady rhythm of the Christian life. This is why John the Baptist, in in Matthew chapter 3, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We see God's kingdom isn't just a kingdom of forgiven people. It is a kingdom of fruit-bearing people. It is a kingdom of repenting people. We continually are turning from our sin and turning to Jesus, submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus. And so in concluding this uh, today, I just want to ask you, just, just ask yourself this question. Are you surprised by God's grace today? 
Uh, maybe you've not ever received God's grace. That's something you don't understand in a personal way. And, and you need to submit yourself to the grace of God. Receive this free gift of God. Turn from your sin and confess that Jesus has authority in my life. You're like, I don't want to be like those religious leaders that reject the authority of Jesus. And I no longer want to live like a prostitute that, that says no to God. I want to say yes. I regret my decision like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And I'm going to turn and obey God. And others of us today, maybe it's the exact opposite. You've said yes to God. But the Holy Spirit might be convicting you that you're, maybe you're, you're struggling with entitlement or pride. And you're resisting the grace of God. And you need to hear today that there's grace for that. That God is saying, come back to me. Don't have this yes, then no mentality. Have a yes, and then no, and then yes mentality. Come back to me. God doesn't leave us in our brokenness and sin. He doesn't leave us in our pride and our arrogance. He doesn't leave us in our entitlement. He doesn't leave us in our self-pity. We need to hear that we're not supposed to stay in a place of brokenness and hopelessness. God's grace lifts us out and moves us forward. And so let's respond to the grace of God today as we worship. Let's come come and get prayer if you need prayer. Come get on your knees on the carpet if you need to put yourself in a posture of, of worship physically. There's communion elements are up here on the front. But church, let's respond to the grace of God today. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you... You see us, you know us, and you respond to us. You, you, you pursue us and find us right where we are. I pray, God, for those among us today that are like me, that struggle with entitlement and pride, that today you would demonstrate your grace by showing us our sin, by showing us our need for grace. I pray, God, for those who are identifying with the, the broken people that are far from you, that feel far from you. God, that you would demonstrate and show your love, your fatherly love for them today. Draw them to yourself. Show them the beauty of the cross. We thank you, God, that you shower us with grace. You say boldly approach the throne. It is the throne of grace. And the cry of our heart this morning, God, let it be yes and amen. We respond joyfully in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.